we're here. It's your new favorite podcast. Welcome to the first ever Securiosity podcast for July 13th, 2018. I'm your co-host, Greg Otto. And I'm your co-host, Jenna Daniel. It's time for us to ask all the questions about this week's cybersecurity news, covering the latest in both public and private sector cybersecurity. You have questions? So do we. Securiosity, let's start the show. Welcome to Securiosity for July 13th. We are live and excited to start the show. Like I said before, I am Greg Otto, the Editor-in-Chief of CyberScoop. If this is your first time coming across CyberScoop, thanks for tuning in, listening, visiting, anything else you want to call it. We're based out of D.C. covering all the latest in cybersecurity straight from the capital of the free world, Washington, D.C. I'm Jenna Daniel. I lead seed in early stage cybersecurity investments for CIT Gap Funds, the Commonwealth Virginia's Venture Capital Fund, and Mach 37, the nation's first cybersecurity accelerator. So, lots of news. Let's get to it this week. Lots of stuff going on. Jen, what do we got in the news department? So, the State Department's top cybersecurity diplomat has plenty on his plate North Korean hackers, new deterrence recommendations for the White House, and building out the cyber capacity of allies through regional forums. Oh, and he wants a new UN cyber norms agreement with Russia and China. Strayer talked to CyberScoop's Sean Langlass this week, saying he is optimistic such a deal can be reached. So, Greg, do you share Strayer's optimism? Not really, <laughs> only because Rob Strayer has a difficult task of doing cybersecurity diplomacy at a department that isn't really fond of cybersecurity diplomacy at the time being. On top of that, Russia and China, when it comes to cybersecurity norms, they want to play by their own rules. So when we ha- when we talk about all these uh, agreements that are going on, it's tough to say that Russia and China are just going to belly up to the table with the Americans and say, okay, yeah, well, we're going to stop hacking your defense companies and we're going to stop meddling in your elections. Our bad, but that's all gone and everything's fine and we can go forward and everybody will be kumbaya going forward. That's not going to happen. I just don't see that happening. So while Rob Strayer wants to get to a point where everybody's on the same page with cyber diplomacy, I I just don't see it happening anytime soon. How long do you think it's going to take? Oh, my God. Years? I I think, yeah, they've been at this for a decade. I mean, everybody has been seeing Russia, China, Iran, North Korea come online as world cyber powers, and they want to be able to do what they want when they want to do it. And those conversations have been happening for a while now, and the conversations about, oh, okay, well, we need to draw lines in the sands have been going on a decade, 10, 15 years, I don't see anything that is going to change the way that these countries operate now as compared to a decade ago. It is what it is. Countries are going to hack if they have the capabilities to hack, and we're going to be fighting about what those red lines are forever. What would you do if you were in his place? (laughs) Find a different line of work? No. (laughs) Um, What would I do? I, I would first have a very tough conversation. Look, the president right now is clearly not going to come out anytime soon and say, okay, Russia hacked our elections. I agree with the intelligence community. That's very clear, but I think that he could go to people inside the National Security Council and say, can you help me on this? Like, this is a big deal, whether this goes beyond the Donald Trump administration. Like, cyber's not going away anytime soon, so we need to figure out something that may not happen in six months, may not happen in a year, but we need to set the path forward maybe five years down the road where we might get to a place of an agreement. So 
Uh, Rob, I feel for you. I, I just don't. <laughs> I just don't share your optimism. So, in other news, Celebrite, the Israeli company famous for hacking into iPhones and grabbing all the data inside, has a new target: the IoT devices in your smart home, Amazon Echoes, Nests, and everything else with an internet connection that provides huge troves of data. That information is increasingly becoming a focal point for Celebrite and their customers, law enforcement agencies, and intelligence agencies around the world. Matty Goldberg, the Celebrite's head of digital forensics research, has said that consumer-grade IoT devices are increasing in popularity and scope, and the data they collect are becoming an integral part of investigations, but they also come with new investigative challenges. So, Jen, my question for you. Does it bother you that smart home devices could be pried open to extract information, or does this strike you as a good thing? So I'm an early adapter on basically everything. And I have to say, as I installed my Nest video cameras and I installed my Kivo door lock, I was sure someone was hacking me at any given time and someone's always watching. So I guess it doesn't bother me because I already assumed it was happening. And it probably is a good thing, right? So if I'm not doing anything wrong, does it matter? But at the same time, they can find out everything about me at any given time. Right. Right, and I think with this, this is very interesting to me because Celebrite has been linked to cracking into iPhones and that has generally been looked upon from a consumer standpoint as something that is bad. If you look at this, what they're doing, and in in their marketing materials, they talk a lot about a hypothetical murder situation where somebody is murdered in their apartment and they come in and they can now scrape uh, an Amazon Echo or a Nestor or figure out. And I think out, that's fantastic. Right. I generally yeah. look at that as good. If you have devices that eventually help to solve in crimes, uh, that is good. But I also think of that as that's not so much an invasion of privacy as much as prying into an iPhone because if somebody's already come into a home, they're, they're victims inside right. the home. If you have an iPhone, that is something that has security built into it that from the get-go, we understand that, like, the lines are drawn. Going back to the conversation we just had, lines are drawn here. So we sort of understand that iPhones have this part and the evidence on there is protected and you need to get a warrant in order to get that. We should probably have to get a warrant, too, for anything else. But at the same time, I think hacking into an iPhone is a good thing. I think that if a crime's committed or I commit a crime should be free to do it. And this is the debate that's going to keep going. Absolutely. Uh, the more yeah. we see these companies come online and the more we see the need for data in law enforcement investigations. Case in point, after months of hints and restarts, Apple has included a new security feature in the newly released iOS 11.4.1, their USB restricted mode. Uh, the new mode restricts access to iPhones by USB devices and thereby aims to stymie the tools that law enforcement, intelligence agencies, and private companies like Celebrite use to crack open iPhones and look at the data inside. It's too early to predict the long-term future for features like this, and a workaround has already been publicly disclosed by a forensic company. So, Jen, my question is to you, do you think features like this matter for everyday users? Again, I really don't think this matters. I think this only matters to criminals, people with data they really have to protect, like government secrets, and then the obscure, like, 2 or 3% of the people who are really, really concerned about privacy, who read everything. For the average person, I don't think it matters. And I think that for the average person, they're not even aware that something like this 
is possible. Like if I were just to talk to my non-techie friends that have iPhones to be like, oh, I want to explain this whole scenario. They'd be like, I don't care. I don't have anything exactly. to hide. Exactly, they don't care. But yeah. then I think about the implications of this because I am immersed in it and I like the privacy that gets put into an iPhone just because my life's on an iPhone. Or I shouldn't say that my life is on an iPhone. You can get into the more private aspects of my life through an iPhone. But it's almost more novelty than it is anything else at this point. Because again, we open our lives up so much just by being on Facebook, using a credit card online, whatever you have it. So it's, when there's this much privacy, it's novelty. It's not mainstream yet. No one cares enough yet. And we will. I, right. And I think it gets into a greater conversation about how much of our data is really out there. And I think with some of the stuff that we've been talking about with Facebook or with an iPhone, I think it's just starting to go into the more mainstream of just how much data is out there. And then you start to get into conversations once more and more people understand what is out there, what exactly can be done. So in completely different news, the Justice Department has apologized for what it called a premature announcement that identity thieves had used data derived from the infamous 2015 OPM breach in its schemes. DOJ's initial statement in June, which contradicted the widely held view that Chinese hackers had hit OPM for espionage purposes, prompted inquiries from lawmakers and muddled the public understanding of the breach. In a letter to Virginia Senator Mark Warner, Assistant Attorney General Stephen Boyd said that investigation into the fraud case had yet to determine exactly how the victim's data was exposed and whether it can, in fact, be sourced directly to the OPM data breach. So, Greg, how could the DOG lead into that conclusion in the first place? I, I don't have an answer for you on that one. I mean, this this was mystifying from the get-go when this identity fraud case initially was put out by the Department of Justice. It caused a really big wave in our newsroom, and I know among other cybersecurity reporters, because the consensus has been for a while that China lifted all of that OPM data. So now yeah. the DOJ coming out and saying, oh, um, some uh, identity thieves in Virginia and Maryland, they had access to it and they decided to open up a bunch of uh, bank accounts in government people's names like well wait what like whoa 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 whoa, whoa. You, that, that's not just like you can't just gloss over that like we need to have some conversations about that and it really spooked a lot of feds uh, yeah uh, other mark warner i know jerry Connolly, lawmaker from virginia on the house side also was like uh what gives this doesn't make any sense um, so it, it kind of sent washington into um, a mini tizzy for those that have been paying attention to this, and it was very clear very, like, that something didn't exactly add up. I mean, if you read through the actual case file, there was very little mention of OPM data even in there. So it gets back to what we were talking about earlier about understanding the data and understanding what exactly goes into the stuff that we deal with. Just because some people that had their data stolen in OPM doesn't mean that every time that they might be a victim of identity theft means because that of, data yeah. came from mm -hmm. an OPM trope. That's yeah. a big difference that lawmakers, lawyers, technologists, and even regular people need to understand. So probably just lack of understanding on all parts. It happens. It's tough to say whether this was nefarious or anything like that. And I'm, I'm not going to jump to any of those yeah. conclusions. <laughs> but bad idea. still, at the same time, bad on the DOJ for even putting it out there that this was related to the actual OPM hacking case. Yeah. So let's move on to um, election news. 
So in the run-up to Cambodia's general election on July 29th, a hacking group tied to China has been breaking into multiple organizations that share a connection to either the country's main opposition party, voting processes, or human rights movements. And that's according to um, FireEye. The findings made possible through a glaring operational security mistake where hackers left their attack servers exposed on the open internet. Interesting. Help illustrate how governments are leaning on cyber espionage capabilities to learn about foreign elections. Greg, is election interference the new normal? It sure seems like it. I feel like because all of these world powers, Russia, China, we've done stuff in the past that's not, it's not necessarily been cybersecurity stuff, but the CIA has definitely influenced elections in the world before. Election interference, I don't know if it's necessarily the new normal as much as it is just the normal. normal. Right. When's the the last time an election wasn't interfered with in some way? I feel like... Any world power, it's just a power thing. Any world power wants to know what's going on in its right. neck of the world. It doesn't mean it's okay by by any stretch. You want the democratic process to sort of carry it out on its own, you know, free and legal without somebody having their thumb on the scale or hacking a, a mail server or, you know, getting to the point that, you know, we're seeing the national discourse get to now. But at the same time, if you are going to want to learn what's going on in your neck of the world if you're a world power. This is what you're going to do. Absolutely. And it's, you know, you said, you know, this is interesting that the attack servers were exposed on the open internet that, you know, we talk about these world powers too, and even world powers, Russia, China, whatever, all of these advanced persistent threat groups Mm -hmm. that we talk about, even they have failures that they're human leaving attack servers exposed on the open <laughs> internet without a password that's a pretty ba- that's it's a pretty really bad. bad screw up yes, it and is. that happens all, all the time it happens there have been american opsec screw ups there have been russian opsec screw ups that's how these guys get caught they're not computers they're human right. and we kind of see this stuff happen all the time and um it's just another added wrinkle to cyber espionage in that even the best are going to trip up at some time Speaking of tripping up, (laughs) sensitive U.S. military drone blueprints and training documents were recently posted for sale on the dark web, according to Boston-based data analytics and intelligence firm Recorded Future. Analysts with Recorded Future say the documents appear to be legitimate, having come from the computer of a captain currently stationed at a U.S. Air Force base in Nevada. The computer was breached through a known outdated router vulnerability that affects Netgear routers, and the Air Force has been conducting an investigation since the report has come out. Jen, my question for you, is there any piece of stolen data that isn't going to eventually end up on the dark web? So, no, I think everything ends up in the dark web. I'm sure every single data piece about me is on the dark web. But I also think more documents than we think have probably been hacked into and are probably on the dark web. I find it hard to believe that this is the only router vulnerability that they found. I imagine that it's all over the place and just haven't been found yet. Yeah, uh, this is one of the most glaring parts about this. And... This this poor captain whose name was not divulged, but divulged also in the documents, was a certificate from the Air Force that said he completed a bunch of cyber challenges, of which was yeah. just the worst. Like, that's embarrassing on uh, a number of different levels. I mean, you hate to see that. But the this data, it's just, it, it really is, it, it's astounding when 
you think about all of the stuff that's just on the clear web that you can find just on the open web, whether it's through Shodan or whether it is through some S3 bucket search engines that have gone up in the past week, or even just plugging in some search capabilities into Google, you can find stuff that should not be publicly accessible. Absolutely. But even, I mean, if you look at Netgear routers, right? So at some point they stop doing firmware updates and they become obsolete, but we still have them in our houses. Yeah. Hell to router. I I don't know how old my router is. New Equifax CISO Jamil Farshi is working to overcome the visceral reaction he'd witness after the company's massive data breach. A veteran of massive rehabilitation efforts via his time spent as CISO at Home Depot, Farshi is embarking on a plan to move Atlanta-based Equifax beyond its security lapses to a position as a security leader. Greg talked with him in an interview up on CyberScoop right now where he talked about his three-act plan to secure Equifax, which includes having the entire company understand that cybersecurity doesn't fall solely on the IT division. Security isn't just security's job. Everyone needs to fill it through or we won't be successful otherwise. Greg, my question to you, do you think Farshi's work can help Equifax overcome his massive brand reputation hit? So his work overcoming the brand reputation, I don't know because I think that's outside his jurisdiction. No, you need a PR firm for that. Yeah, (laughs) PR firm, marketing firm, uh, I think that falls more to the CEO. Jamil can worry about the security apparatus, which clearly needs his help. Mm -hmm. And I think that he has a good plan in place. I mean, he talked to me a little bit about working as far as setting up fusion centers and moving past socks and making sure that everybody's in the same room so when things go down as far as operation or there is another breach or there is something that needs to be fixed that everybody is in the same room they're on the same page and they can move with relative speed because Equifax is still a big company so they can move relatively quickly to do the things that they need to do in order to fix their system. What was interesting to me is that he really wants Equifax to become a security leader almost in that it it becomes somewhat of an innovative security company which I think is a little bit of a pie-in-the-sky thing. Good for him, and that is what he's driving toward. But to say that you're going to be seeing Equifax giving a keynote at RSA or Black Hat or DEF CON or something like no. that, like no, no. I, I don't see that happening. That's not the way that this works. The technology companies drive right. all of this, not the yeah. non-technology companies. Maybe one day, 30, 40 years from now, do I think that's going to happen in three years? No. no. But hey, I don't think that the greater market expects Equifax to do that. I think they would be happy just making sure that the company can keep the data secure and they're not on the front page two or three <laughs> years from now, the way that Yahoo was with several breaches. I just think that people want Equifax to fix their problems, keep the stock going up, and not put everybody's credit monitoring services out there to be stolen by identity thieves. Sounds like it's going in the right direction. And finally, Google Chrome is enabling a new security feature called Site Isolation in response to the set of speculative execution side channel attacks. That's a mouthful. Better known Spectre Meltdown, we've 
written about these before. If you're listening to this podcast, you've definitely heard about these before. This comes after a new Spectre-like attack was disclosed and the newly enabled site isolation feature attempts to provide what Google security team believes is the most effective mitigation possible. It's a trade-off, however, requiring more memory, which is worth noting because Chrome is already a memory hog. Um, so this is undeniably the latest security improvement from Chrome. It's widely considered to possess the best security features among browsers. Jen, my question for you, do security features like this make a difference in what browser you use? It matters to me, but I meet with cybersecurity companies all day, every day. But to the average person, again, I don't think so, right? I think for them, it's always going to be about ease of use. To me, even being immersed in cybersecurity, I really don't care all that much. Like, I'm glad I, I am not a victim of this, but when it comes to using browsers and browser security overall, security is not something that is top of mind for me. And it's not top of mind for me only because with the advent of plugins and additions and everything that you can add to a browser, um, I, I, I would rather just add those on as I see fit, and that's how I would feel secure. What are you adding on to your browser? Well, like a password manager, for okay. instance. Like Google Chrome and I think Mozilla, they both have uh, password managers sure. built in. Yeah. But I use uh, a third-party password manager, okay. and all of the plugins that work across Chrome, Mozilla, Safari, and the new browser that I actually do like, uh, Brave. But all of that is dependent on third parties. I don't want to depend on Chrome or Mozilla protecting my passwords. Like that's a web feature. Like the browsers are just a window to the sure. web. Like yeah. I'm more concerned about the websites that I'm using being more, <laughs> uh, you know, concentrating more on security than I am. A, As I well, said, use browsers. a credit card on a web browser and it's stolen. <laughs> <laughs> no question. Okay, we're going to turn the questions to our guests now. Our first guest is Joe Saunders, the CEO of RunSafe Technologies. Joe's company is interesting in that it splits its concentrations between automotive and industrial control cybersecurity. Joe answers our questions on both these topics while also answering our one big random question. But before we get to the interview, we wanted to let you know about CyberScoop's upcoming event in October, DC Cyber Week. DC Cyber Week is the nation's largest cybersecurity festival. This citywide festival right here in D.C. drives thousands of the most influential cybersecurity leaders to Washington. We're here all week, October 15th through the 19th, to exchange best practices, collaborate, and find ways to achieve common goals. You're going to be able to network with the most influential leaders in cybersecurity. You're going to learn from leading cybersecurity companies on how they are tackling some of tomorrow's most pressing threats. You can collaborate with top cyber thought leaders and experts to solve common challenges and participate in more than 100 community events, summits, workshops, hackathons, and social gatherings. So if you want to check out more, if you want to get involved, if you want to attend, check out dccyberweek.com. You can check out the schedule. You can see if you want to sponsor, or you can just figure out ways to come to DC and hang out with us in October. So come check us out, dccyberweek.com. Next up, we've got an interview with Joe Saunders of Run Safe Security. Joe, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us how you got your start in cybersecurity. Well, if I go back a few years, uh, you know, I was helping the FBI on a program related to economic espionage. And it was through a, a you know a commercial contractor, um, and I saw firsthand what some of the threats were to not only critical infrastructure but intellectual property and the theft of intellectual property. And if you combine that with another experience, which was 
uh, compromises in supply chain that the Department of Defense had, the combination of those two events said, you know, there's something major here that we really have to solve for not only, you know, national security, but, you know, certainly companies and products uh, that are out there that need protection. So uh, that was really kind of the introduction. I've been helping some other companies prior to the launch of RunSafe and met up with uh, the uh, technical team to really launch RunSafe in a different way. And what does RunSafe do? So we set out to uh, protect critical infrastructure. And as uh, you know, devices are getting more connected and digitally linked together, attack surfaces are increasing. So we're protecting embedded software across critical infrastructure. And we're also going back into the supply chain of manufacturing. And as man smart manufacturing is coming out, again, there's a lot of compromises that can be introduced in that process. So knowing your supply chain and having a way to build trusted software on top of untrusted hardware is a key aspect of our value proposition for manufacturers and, and suppliers to the critical infrastructure. And you talk a lot about cyber hardening. What does that mean exactly? So we actually took a different approach as a company and especially in the operational technology side of critical infrastructure, uh, historical approaches of intrusion detection uh, you know, really don't work and kind of traditional models of cybersecurity don't work. And our fundamental premise was if you think about a manufacturing being compromised or you think about critical infrastructure and networks being penetrated, we know that bad actors and malware and exploitations will ultimately find their way into an infrastructure or a process or an organization perhaps through an insider threat. So we decided that what we want to do is take a different approach and really provide a form of, of mitigation and not detection. So with that, you know, we have kind of a thought around our company, which is an ounce of protection is much more valuable than a pound of detection. So your company also focuses a little bit on, or I shouldn't say a little bit, but you also have the focus on vehicle cybersecurity and transportation cybersecurity. Kind of talk to me a little bit how you see the relationship between what goes on in that sector and how that works with what you're doing on the critical infrastructure side. Sure. Uh, and, you know, certainly the automotive side of the equation, with if you think about OEMs and the manufacturing process, much like other industries, they rely on a whole host of suppliers. And, you know, trying to protect a vehicle or a vehicle fleet is, is somewhat of a daunting task because on any car there's uh, upwards of 70 or more different kinds of embedded pieces of software on a vehicle. And so if you think about that, the attack surface is large, especially as you're connecting telematics with, you know, Bluetooth and uh, cellular and wireless and different forms of communication. So the access to a car is very significant. And if you're a Ford or a Honda or a Toyota or, you know, um, a Tesla, the access to that car is, you know, the attack surface is so large that ultimately having a standard approach across your entire car to protect all that embedded software, those 70 different pieces of software, is very difficult if you have a diverse supply chain. So much like in other forms of manufacturing, we fit in a way that can create the OEM, in that case Ford or Honda, can create a standard way to protect all the software across their vehicle and then guard against the threat of someone, you know, steering a car off the road. 
Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, you know, it seems like the tech in the automotive industry has sort of outpaced the regulations when you're talking about cybersecurity and how to secure these cars. And we've seen so much going into autonomous cars with Tesla and Uber and Waymo and all the other companies that are trying to figure out autonomous vehicles. So how can everybody get on the same page with keeping pace with the way the technology is sort of transforming and moving, but making sure that things stay secure? Yeah, and I, th I think it gets around to, uh, you know, especially in the automotive space, the, the core question is not security, but it's ultimately safety. And so there's been, a, historically in the automotive space, there's been a lot of legislation around safety. Go back 30, 40 years to seatbelt laws, obviously that was to protect the drivers. Uh, so I do think safety, when it, when it ties to safety, it's going to be very critical. And a lot of people suggest in the autonomous vehicle space, obviously if, if everyone's driving in kind of a uniform way, then safety should improve. But there, there will be kind of the, you know, the, the whole headline of, you know, if there is an accident like there, there have been recently uh, in autonomous vehicles, people will point to that. But I think as long as everyone's moving towards greater safety, then more security, more cybersecurity will be adopted. And in addition to that, I do think some of the industry players are trying to self-police in a way and trying to create some, some technology standards that don't require legislation. And so we'll see how far they come because there's folks like Lyft and Uber and others that want to take advantage of more secure vehicles and autonomous vehicles. So they'll try to push the envelope. And if they can cooperate, which they are starting to do with the traditional OEMs, then I think it will advance that way too. On the industrial side, how is OT and IT blending together and how are companies responding to it? Well, uh, there's, there's an interesting thing at the Department of Defense around how they look at different networks that they manage. There is the IT network, then there's the OT network, and then there's building management systems and other systems. Those are becoming more integrated together. So the information technology with all the computing and the productivity tools and the other things, you know, that, that's where historically a lot of the defenses have occurred. But if you think about a data center or the infrastructure that operates the Pentagon, for example, if there are compromises to those other components, as you say, the operational technology, if, if those are connected and smart devices and they're also providing a gateway to get to information technology or other things internally, then those disparate networks as they become converged are also creating attack vectors. So I believe over time then the defenses across both of those uh, are coming. And, and so that's where I think the, the future of defending kind of places like the Pentagon or Coast Guard or other places you know, are going to be really protecting the infrastructure and the operational technology. I get the sense, though, that when you talk about the OT versus IT, that there is a bit of butting heads a little bit. I mean, if you talk about the Pentagon and the Coast Guard, it's, you know, you get into mission and everybody's on the same page. But you start to talk about a manufacturing plant, there are people that want to make sure that the job is done and the plant is processing what they need to process and there are functioning as a cog of the business and then the IT people are making sure that you know they're kind of sticking to their back office roles and making sure that everything works and the message kind of gets not blended but I mean there's again that butting of heads where there's two different missions at hand but clearly they need to be working together so how does solutions like yours kind of blend that together to make sure that everybody's on the same page when they're thinking about safety and security? Yeah, so it, it comes down to maintaining a continuity of operations and, and ensuring that the operations continue. And so as the smart manufacturing or 
the cooling equipment, the power supply in the data center, if those things go down, then there's a loss of operation. So the unifying theme is to continue to be very efficient in your operations, and if you have a loss of operations, then everybody loses. So as long as you're maintaining operations, you're good. If someone takes out your cooling equipment and your systems fail because they overheat, then you know, that, that's a problem for everyone, regardless of you know, where in that ecosystem you play or, or what role you fill in an organization. So, so maintaining operations is the key. So we've seen these type of problems pop up in the past year, particularly around the Trisis attack that happened in Saudi Arabia. So how have things like what happened in Saudi Arabia sort of changed what you were doing and how you've seen the landscape change? Because it's obviously been on the forefront of everybody's minds, whether it is the private companies that are dealing with this or even the government from a policy standpoint. So how has Trisis sort of changed the game? Yeah, so it's, it's you know, it speaks to a, a general issue that you face in protecting infrastructure, which is I have a bunch of suppliers and then I have my operations to maintain. And so when, if you look at an attack like that, who was really, who is ultimately to blame? Well, certainly the software was compromised. And so people, it was an easy target to kind of take down. And so with that example, um, it is a really good example of how a disruption in a single component can take out your operations. And so with that, I think the, the shift is that uh, the end customers, like Saudi Ramco in that case, who is, you know, who is providing all the infrastructure and the operations, they have a much greater um, you know, realization that they have to maintain the, the operations as they go forward. So they're, you know, th- whether it's through uh, service level agreements or contracts or licensing with their different suppliers, uh, like you know, those that provide, the, like Schneider Electric in the case you're talking about, you know, there will be an increase in service level agreements between the end customer and the manufacturer of those products. And so that's one way contractually, I think ultimately between those organizations where there will be improvements in in, uh, security. What do you think the next big attack is around critical infrastructure? Should we be worried about the power grid falling or the water supply going? Like what's the real risk here? Well, there's a couple different things. So if you think about all the data centers and just in our area, in the Northern Virginia, Washington, DC metro area, there are data centers you know, it's data center alley or whatever you mm-hmm. want label you want to put on it. And those data centers rely on water for cooling equipment to keep the data centers cold or, you know, at the right temperature. And if the water supply is cut off or shut down or can't distribute to the data center, then the data center needs backup systems or other things that, or in order to main, maintain situations. So I believe that all the utilities, whether it's power, water, energy, they're fundamental to you know the successful operation of all this infrastructure, and if they have any problems, then you know data centers or you know other operations are shut down. So I believe there's a whole ecosystem there. If you look in Fairfax County, Fairfax County Water services multiple government agencies, multiple data centers. If they were to have a cyber attack and shut off their operations, it would be a big problem across not only the U.S. government but a lot of the data centers. Are the water companies doing enough to protect themselves? They've done some things, yeah, for sure. And they also look at the difference between IT systems and OT, and OT is a part of their infrastructure. And so in order to provide a level of service, they they need some cooperation with their customers as well. 
So it may be a slight increase in service for them to offer, you know, a more robust infrastructure. And so I think that's an element if the customers really care, they may be able to go with a value-added service from the, so it's actually an opportunity for them to provide a value-added service and, and really ensure their most, uh, well, everyone's critical, but the uh, data centers and the other elements of critical infrastructure, you know, may be willing to pay more. So I think there's a lot in it for the water companies, even if they're doing enough internally to protect their systems, there's more they can do that can be value-added to their customers. So with the private companies that are in the critical infrastructure space, how have you seen them respond to threats like Trisis? Have they sunk more money into re-upping the security that goes into the safety controller systems? Um, are they dragging their feet? Is it somewhere in between? How have you seen them sort of change up what they're doing security-wise? I've seen a couple things. Uh, one thing I've seen is people are becoming more aware around the threat intelligence, and it's increasing the awareness of what the threats are. So they're buying threat intelligence services. They're, they're subscribing and kind of sharing information more. Uh, so there are ISACs that are sharing information uh, across critical infrastructure. Uh, but uh, there is now more interest in protecting the technology itself because of these attacks. So it kind of covers all three of those different angles. So the information sharing thing, that's something that's interesting. I'd love to hear what you think about how the private companies are sharing information with the ISACs and the government, because I know that the government has made requests considerably since DHS has stood up a portal for them to share information that they don't get enough information. So I would love to pick your brain about the mindset of these private companies and their, their sort of trepidation into sharing with the government. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it is a challenge because they don't want to share what their technology is necessarily and show that they have the vulnerabilities. Uh, but certainly, um, you know, DHS is sharing information and giving people warnings about, you know, here are the vulnerabilities with this type of software. So uh, I would say there are six or eight announcements every week about critical infrastructure coming out of DHS. Um, and, you know, it's about specific vendor technology. They're not naming who, you know, the private companies are. They're not naming the data centers. They're naming the technology. And so those end customers then, uh, you know, I think more of them are becoming aware that they're not going to be targets themselves because they're not disclosing wh where that technology is deployed. But if they share the information, then, you know, uh, there's a greater good that can happen. So as long as those end customers are protected and not singled out and targeted, then, you know, it can be helpful. And certainly the manufacturers of those products that go in there, I don't think it's a great day when they show up on that list. You know, if they show up with vulnerabilities in their technology, um, it's out there and people can kind of scrape that information and decide to find out where that technology is deployed. But I do think the end customers have an incentive to share. Um, and certainly DHS has been pretty prolific in the ability to get information out. We subscribe to it ourselves. So... Every interview on Securiosity ends on one random question. Your random question, since you focus on automotive cybersecurity, what's your dream car? <laughs> well, uh, so I drive a 2002 Honda Accord. And I that cannot be myself, your dream car. I consider myself a utilitarian when it comes to automotive. But wow. with that said, if I had to pick a car, I think I, I'm pretty interested in the Teslas. And so there may be a Tesla someday that I want to... I want to drive. I'm, I'm interested in the innovative technology. I admire Elon Musk. I think uh, with Tesla, with SpaceX, with, um, you know, SolarCity and different initiatives he has, 
you know, he's really pushing the forefront. So, you know, I, I love that angle. You struck me as a 1970s muscle car guy, though. <laughs> so I'm surprised. <laughs> I do have uh, a convertible that's pretty old, uh, but I wouldn't call it a muscle car. <laughs> and with the Tesla, who wouldn't want the button to launch in a ludicrous mode? I mean, that's, that, that's, a, <laughs> that's a tough, uh, tough draw. You, you can't say no to that. Everybody's got to try it at least once, right? Uh, I think so, and I also want to go on high-speed, uh, you know, railways and things like that. So, you know, um, I'm, I'm a fan of Elon Musk, so that's what I can say. Great. Joe, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate your time talking about this stuff. Thank you thanks, very much. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Thanks again to Joe for his insights. I feel like everyone wants to get behind the wheel of a Tesla, but hey, like I said, look, pressing a button to get from like 65 to 85 in 2.5 seconds, it's cool. Can't it's lie. It's all about a muscle car. I, no I, Tesla's. I, I don't know. I don't know. The modern day muscle car. You can't blame him for liking it. <laughs> so if you liked what you heard, head over to iTunes, give us that five-star rating, subscribe, hang with us as we get off the ground. We're also on Stitcher. We'll hopefully be on Spotify by the next episode. Also, we're all up on social media. Find us at Securiosity Pod on Twitter and Instagram. First one in the book. Should we do this again? Absolutely. Do you want to do this again? Let's do it. All right. Cool. Okay, everyone. Until next week, stay curious. Stay curious.